Great to see you on the week after Easter. I hope you're still uh, rejoicing and remembering what a wonderful Savior we have. Thanks, Jeanette, for reading the passage. Um, you know, sometimes we have Easter, then we just move right on. And uh, Jesus actually stuck around after the resurrection and appeared several times to the apostles and to witnesses. And I, I just imagine how hard it is to believe that he really rose from the dead. So he says, Thomas, if you can't believe, here, here's my hands. Here's my side. He gave the proof that was needed um, for them to believe in him. And then um, I think our, our kids, or at least our youth today, they studied Pentecost which is when, uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. And um, I, don't, I don't think I heard him speaking in tongues down there. They didn't do any tongue speaking. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that's another proof that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain um, 3,000 Jews breaking away from Judaism and forming this thing called the church and then risk, risking their lives to spread the gospel, which it, it did in the first century all over the Roman world. Um, so he's alive, and he is here this morning. Okay, Now, we have been going through John's gospel. Um, before Easter, we had gotten as far as chapter 5, and today we are in chapter 6, which is an amazing chapter. All right, um, I'm going to push to get through as much as I can, but it, it's going to take several weeks because there's so much in John chapter 6. Um, so let me read uh, the event of the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. So John 6, 1. After this, after the events of John chapter 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So that's up north in Israel. Uh, Jesus, um, he, he lived in Nazareth on the west side of the sea. He ended up doing ministry on the north part of the sea. And here he is going to do this on the eastern part of the sea. And um, this, this sea is kind of important to me. Important to Josh because on the Sea of Galilee is where Josh really kind of fully embraced the Lord while we were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And I said, Josh, if it's real, I want you to get out and walk on the water. No, we didn't, we didn't do that. <laughs> that would have been awesome, right? And we were baptized. <laughs> All right, so he is, he is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So the Golan Heights is, is a huge mountain range on the eastern side. Um, he probably went up on the foothills of uh, the, the Golan Heights. All right. So what happens? Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, why is that put in here? I, I think because what this tells us is that people are in transit. Um, multitudes are heading down to Jerusalem 
Um, and he's going to do this miracle for thousands of people. And you could say, well, where did all the people come from? Well, they were moving to go to Passover. All right. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus knows he's going to multiply this little lunch and feed thousands of people. But um, he picks out Philip. And I kind of get the picture that Philip is the, um, the detail guy. You know, every business, every church has the detail guy. And uh, I'm glad for the detail people because they, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do anything without the detail guy. But sometimes detail guys can be kind of, it'll never work, right? So I, I think, for lack of a better term, Jesus is kind of messing with Philip here, all right? Philip answered him, and Philip pulls out his pocket protector and his calculator. He goes, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. All right, so a denarii is a day's wages. So this is about eight months worth of, so he's crunched the numbers. This will never work, Jesus. I don't know, we're doomed. So let's, let's go beyond Philip. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves, little, little buns is what that would be, and two fish, probably pickled little sardines, okay? But what are they for so many? So here you have, and I, I admit I'm speculating here, but here you have Andrew. He's always second fiddle to his big brother, Peter. And he's kind of got that, that second child mentality well, I, I, here's, a, here's some, that'll ah, probably never work because he's always in the shadow. I, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we're reading too much into uh, these two apostles. But Jesus had set them up to start thinking about how impossible this, this situation is. Now, just to comment on this, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves. Now, you know my, my wife is, um, she has developed the entire children's ministry program at Moody. And um, her standard is she's training these kids to not just do um, lazy children's ministry. And one of her tests is this. She'll assign people to teach this passage and if they turn it into a lesson on the boy who shared his lunch they don't pass because it's not about the boy who shared his lunch it's about Jesus in fact this miracle is in all four gospels only one gospel mentions the boy so there was a boy and he probably shared his lunch. I don't think the apostles confiscated it from him. All right, so go boy. But we miss it if, if, if you go home and all you get out of it is, you know, a boy shared his lunch. Jesus multiplied it. You should share too. Go home and share a toy. That's a moralistic lesson, but it misses what the point is. that It's about Jesus, okay? All right, so 
We've got thousands of people. We got two fish, five little buns. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Add the women, add the children, could have been 20, 25, 30,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 leftover baskets. How many apostles were there? 12, right? So you got two miracles here, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and the miracle of perfect menu planning. <laughs> Even for, uh, for Easter or Thanksgiving, you invite people over, you don't really know how many are going to show up or how much. You don't want to have too little. You don't want it, but it never works out. There's always leftovers, right? Here, Perfect menu plan. Everybody was filled, even the apostles down to the last crumb. Okay, how's that for efficiency? Now, the focus of this entire chapter, all 71 verses, is not this miracle. Okay, the miracle gives Jesus the opportunity to say, you know, speaking of bread, I'm the bread of life. The miracle is just a sign that points to his true identity. That's why in uh, verse 14, it's called a sign. A sign is something that points to something greater. Okay? So the greater thing is Jesus does this amazing miracle to point to him. Now, a theme throughout John's gospel is they don't get it. The crowd doesn't get it. Most of the time they stay stuck on the purely worldly, earthly level. All right? So in John 4, he tells the woman at the well, I can give you living water. And she goes, no, you can't. You don't have a bucket. She's thinking of literal water. He, he tells Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. I got to crawl back into mommy's tummy, he says. Yeah. And, and here he's talking about him being the bread of life and they're stuck. They, don't, they can't think beyond the next meal. So we have an opportunity here as they don't get it, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding, at least today's passage, three times. He's, he's basically going to say this. They, first of all, they want to make him a king. And he runs away and hides. He's, he's, he's a king, but he points out, I'm not that kind of king. All right? I'm not that kind of king. Then... They start talking about doing, don't work for bread, do the works that bring eternal life. 
And they start talking about, well, what should we do? This work or that work? And no, no, not those kind of works. The work is believe in me. Then they bring it back to bread. Give us the bread. We love this welfare program where you will give us free food like Moses for 40 years. Yes, we want the bread. And he goes, I'm going to give you bread, but not that kind of bread. I am the bread. So there's our little outline, okay? Uh, First of all, not that kind of king. So... Um, verse 14 says this when the people saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world so Moses had talked about hey be looking for a super prophet and they kind of thought that might be the Messiah and they're waiting and waiting and waiting now there were minor prophets There were major prophets and minor prophets, but all of them were minor prophets compared to Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He runs away from this forced forced election, all right? We are going to force you to be our king. Now, what's wrong with this? Isn't Jesus a king? Absolutely. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. But he's not willing to be the kind of king that they want him to be. They, in essence, want him to be a prosperity king. We choose him to be king So we get stuff. So John Piper on this concept writes this. They hadn't been changed, okay? So these people are just not, they're not saved. They're just living for the weekend. They're just living for material stuff. They hadn't been changed spiritually yet, right? Jesus didn't come into the world to lend his power to already existing appetites. Oh, that is so deep. Jesus didn't come into the world to lend his power to already existing appetites. That's the fundamental mistake of the prosperity gospel. Leave people untransformed in what they crave and simply add the power of Jesus as the way to get it. That's not the gospel. And here's the sad thing. There are millions of people, not just in America, but a lot of them in very poor countries who have accepted Jesus and they're still headed for hell because the Jesus they have accepted is not the true Jesus, but the prosperity Jesus, right? Prosperity Jesus is the Jesus you use as the means to the end of obtaining something else. And that something else is your true God, be it more money, health, wealth, If Jesus is just the means to the end 
of getting something else, you're using him as king, not worshiping him as king. All right? Now, that doesn't mean you can't go to him and ask for things and pray for things. He delights to answer prayer. But here's the question. Is he your ultimate delight or just the goodies he gives? Okay? Now, I think if we changed a few words here, so P Piper's you know, warning against the prosperity gospel, I think we could change some words and talk about the political gospel. All right? Let's get Jesus behind our party and then we'll really be in charge. So let me change a few words. They hadn't been changed. Jesus didn't come into the world to lend his power to already existing political parties. That's the fundamental mistake of the political gospel. Leave people untransformed in their power categories and simply add the power of Jesus. That's not the gospel. What are you saying, Pastor? Are you saying we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't be? No. no. Vote, be a good citizen, be aware. But is that really your ultimate, the kingdom of this world? And we just add some Jesus power to it? I think he deserves far more than just being a political voting block. Okay? You know, there's a difference between asking a king for something out of submissive love for the king versus asking out of selfishness. The first person asks because the king is worthy. He's sovereign. He's good. He's kind. He's wise. The second person asks because the king is just useful. Right? So here's, here's the question. Do I value him or just what he can give me? Is he the end or just the means to the end of something greater than him? Right? So Jesus says, I am not that kind of king. So let's, let's move on. The topic is going to turn to works okay now um, I believe at this point I am skipping or I am I'm uh, cutting out a big section because between point one and point two uh, it's it's nighttime the apostles get in a boat a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus walks on the water and then they end up going to Capernaum up north, all right? So we're going to talk about that next week. But the flow of what's happening here, it's first the miracle, all right? Then the talk of him being a king. There's the event on the water. And now after they find him, they pick up on this theme uh, of, of, boy, you, you, you gave us bread. We want more bread. So here's what he says. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They can't figure that out. 
And he bypasses the question. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, not because you saw the, the sign that pointed to me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're, you're after me for just purely food, right? So then he says, here's what you should be doing. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. All right? Don't work for the food that perishes. Now, this is, this is not an absolute statement. Everybody quit your job and stop working and just seek Jesus. Now, this is a priority statement. All right? Do not work as a priority for the food that perishes. You've heard the phrase, should, you know, some people um, work to live, other people live to work. Jesus is saying, you're, you're living, you're working for the wrong thing here. All right? But what should you work for? The food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And as we're going to find out, not only does the Son of Man give it to them, he is the bread. Okay? He is the bread that he is going to give. Okay? Let's keep going. Um, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, they hear, okay, Jesus, we're too caught up in secular work. We should probably be doing religious works, all right? So what, what, do, you want, uh, what do you want us to do, okay? Should we fast more? Should we go to church more? Should we give more? What religious works should we do to be doing the work of God? Right? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's talking about himself. Now, let's talk about this, this word works, okay? Uh, to be doing the works of God. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe. Now, this is kind of tricky because all throughout Scripture, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are saved by faith, not by works. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the godly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Yesterday I did a, a wedding, Billy and Anna's wedding. They said, we want you to preach on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to make the gospel crystal clear. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. Not by works. So scripture makes it clear that salvation is by faith, not by earning, not by meriting anything before, before God, okay? So I think that's, that's behind what's going on here. But I don't think that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here, okay? This is 
the work of God that you believe. This is the work of God that you believe. In one sense, believing is not a work. In another sense, as we saw on Palm Sunday, Jesus talked about entering the narrow gate. And in one version of Jesus' statement, he says, strive to enter the narrow door. And that word strive in the Greek, agonazo, agonize, to make sure you are entering through faith, okay? I want to be careful that you don't misunderstand. I am not saying you're saved by works. What I am saying is it takes a certain kind of work to be saved, not meritorious work, not work where you earn. There is the work of stopping trusting yourself, stopping trusting and presenting your righteous deeds before God, repenting, turning, and trusting Jesus. You're, you're angling and working for bread. You're, you're, you're manipulating me to be your king, to give you bread. You're working pretty hard. Stop that. Here's what you ought to work on. Believing in me. All right? The Jewish people in general didn't get this. In Romans 10, Paul says, My brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jewish brothers is that they may be saved. He's saying they're not saved. Yep. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What does this mean? They're zealous. There are a lot of zealous religious people. And they're working real hard But here's their problem. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. You know what it means to submit to God's righteousness? It means you stop offering your own righteousness to God and you submit and receive the righteous gift that he gives you. Jesus is the righteousness of God. His perfect life, his death. Stop trying to impress God with your good works Work to humble yourself and receive the gift of God. So the word work is being, it's being used here, but not as a meritorious work, as as a call to trust in Jesus, not yourself. You know, some people think they're too bad to have Jesus save them. And there's a whole lot of people who think they're too good who need to be saved by Jesus. He can save anybody. In fact, the people who think that they're too bad to be saved are probably closer to being saved than those who think they're too good to need salvation. Right? Probably the best illustration. Any of you ever work as a lifeguard? 
You work as a lifeguard. Did you ever save somebody from drowning? You did. Yeah. Awesome. Now, tell me if this is true. One of the hardest things when it comes to rescuing somebody is convincing them to stop trying to save themselves because they're flailing around, right? So, <laughs> bonk them on the head or tell them stop saving yourself. Yeah. yeah, he was pretty far gone, right? Oh, three-year-old, okay, all right, boom, yes. But you saved a life, all right. But yeah, um, for, um, from what I understand, one of the most difficult things, is like if you're going out in the ocean and it's too deep and somebody's, and you, you, you're there to put your arm around them and rescue them, they have to stop working. That's what Jesus is telling them. The work of God is stop presenting your works before God and trust in me. So it's not those kind of works, Jesus clarifies. All right, last point. Not that kind of bread. So I don't think they get it at all. And their mind is back on lunch. Okay. So they want to change the subject back to bread. So they said to him then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Because you just said we should believe in you. All right, let's turn this conversation back to us getting some more bread. Right? What work do you perform to convince us that we should believe in you? I know. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. See, we're back on the bread track. Moses led the people 40 years in the desert, and there was magic donuts in the morning. Magic manna every morning. Hey, Jesus, if you're really from God, how about some more bread? See what they're doing here? These are, these are like good three-year-olds. They can keep on bringing it back to whatever they want. Right? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. So first of all, let's get this straight. It wasn't Moses. It was God. Okay, but my father, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, now look at this. It changes from, you know, bread being this object out there to, for the bread of God is he. Bread is now a he. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. Do they get it? They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. It's, Kind of like the woman at the well. Oh, yeah, I'd love that, that living water. Then I won't have to come here every day, and I'll have magic water. that It'll save me a lot of work. They still think it's physical bread. <laughs> Jesus said to them, and I kind of wonder if he raised his voice here, I am the bread of life. Me. 
the whole thing with Moses, that was all just the appetizer with bread. I'm the real bread. The whole thing with lunch yesterday where I multiplied the fish, that was an appetizer. It all points to me. I'm the bread of life. Okay? Now, um, I, I'm not going to go fully into this. We'll do this in the future. But some people go, oh, okay, I get it. This is communion bread. It turns into Jesus. And you, I don't think this, I don't think John 6 is about communion. I think communion is about John 6. Okay? Now, I've realized that there are people who are just convinced that when you eat communion, you're eating Jesus' literal body and blood, and there's nothing I can do to convince people otherwise. I've tried. It's locked in. It's a paradigm shift that's not going to happen. Okay? But I think if you follow the analogies and the word plays that Jesus uses in John, the entire Gospel of John, He's just saying, I am uh, the fulfillment of all this bread talk. Okay, so um, I don't, I, I, we're not going to get into that now. But I think he's just saying, I am the bread of life. Okay, now, um, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So coming to Jesus is the same as believing in Jesus. If he is bread, what do you do to take bread into you? You eat it. What do you do to take Jesus into you? You believe on him. Eating is believing. Drinking is believing. Just like physical items you ingest into your body, Spiritual people you believe in. That's how you take him in. Okay? So ultimately what he's, he's, he's trying every angle to get them to believe in him, but they're not getting it. Now, here's what I want to do. There's an initial coming to Jesus for salvation. Where you go, I get it. I can't work my way to heaven. He, Jesus paid it all. I trust in him. And then, here's what happens to a lot of Christians. They go, well, I already did that. 27 years ago. February 23rd, it was a cold, windy night. And Billy Graham was on TV. Or I went to church and I heard the guy, and I believed on Jesus. What have you done since then? go to church, uh, but I, I don't nothing, right? Here's something interesting. Whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me, those are verbs that are in the present tense and without getting too complicated. Those are, that's the tense of continual action. The minute you believe in Jesus, you're saved. But there's the idea here of continually coming to him and continually believe, believing in him. In other words, we need to regularly come back to Jesus to satisfy our spiritual hunger, right? 
to, to, to meet those needs that are, that are in our soul. So as we close, let me, let me just bring before us three spiritual hunger pains. And maybe it's been a while since you believed on Jesus, took Jesus in to satisfy these spiritual hunger needs. All right? what, one of them is simply um, the need for forgiveness. Now, it's absolutely true the moment you believed in Jesus, your past, present, and future sins were all, all paid for. What we're talking about here is in your daily walk, you, know, you don't lose your salvation, but sometimes we just need to come before the Lord and say, I've blown it again. Will you forgive me? Not save me from hell, but restore our relationship. And maybe some of you are weighed down by a burden of, of sin. And here's, here's a promise. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So uh, those of you who go, well, I, I, I'm sin free, you're deceived, right? But what if, I, what if I do come here this morning burdened with sin? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And confess here doesn't mean go into a big scary dark box and tell a person behind the curtain your sins. It means tell him. Tell him your sins and the promises that he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive you and cleanse you. So can I ask you to bow your, your, your head and close your eyes and come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus and claim this promise. Name your sin to him. Not out loud, but claim his forgiveness. With your heads bowed, another spiritual hunger is worry and anxiety and wondering if you're just down here on this earth all alone, figuring it all out and Lots of anxiety. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your lives. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I want you to take your worries right now and remind yourself and claim and, and eat Take into you the truth that you're not alone. God has got you in the palm of his hand and even those circumstances that seem out of control are all under control and you can give him your worry. Give him your worry. One last thing. There's a lot of purposelessness. One of the most agonizing things is to go through life without a purpose. The scripture says this, 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. One way to start to figure out what your purpose is is to go, what gifts has God given me? Who can I serve? How can I serve in the church? How can I serve in my neighborhood? How can I serve in my family? How can I serve at my way, uh, place of work? And then Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Who can you share the gospel with? He has given us a purpose. Eat the bread. Believe on him. Believe on him for salvation. Believe on him for forgiveness of sin. Believe on him for anxiety. Believe on him for purpose. Lord, as, as um, our scripture says today, you are the bread of life. You satisfy. You fill. You take away that hunger. Lord, I pray for my friends here that uh, you would give them a full meal of yourself so we walk away today satisfied and praising you. And may all the glory go to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let us sing.